Tonight's reading is um, Ruth chapter 4, beginning at the first verse. So Boaz went to the town gate and took a seat there. When the family redeemer he'd mentioned came by, Boaz called out to him, Come over here, friend, I want to talk to you. So they sat down together. Then Boaz called ten leaders from the town and asked them to sit as witnesses. And Boaz said to the family redeemer, You know Naomi who came back from Moab? She's selling the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I felt that I should speak to you about it so you can redeem it if you wish. If you want the land, then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you don't want it, let me know right away, because I'm next in line to redeem it after you. The man replied, All right, I'll redeem it. But then Boaz told him, Of course, your purchase of land from Naomi also requires that you married Ruth, the Moabite widow. That way she can have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land in the family. Then I can't redeem it, the family redeemer replied, because this might endanger my own estate. You redeem the land, I cannot do it. In those days it was the custom in Israel for anyone transferring a right of purchase to remove his sandal and hand it to the other party. This publicly validated the transaction. So the other family redeemer drew off his sandal as he said to Boaz, You buy the land. Then Boaz said to the leaders and to the crowd standing around, Your witnesses today that I bought Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion and Marlon. And with the land I've acquired Ruth, the Moabite widow of Marlon, to be my wife. This way she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband and to inherit the family property here in his hometown. You are all witnesses today. Then the leaders and all the people standing there replied, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who's now coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, from, all, from whom all the nation of Israel descended. May you be great in Ephrathah and famous in Bethlehem. And may the Lord give you descendants by this young woman, who will be like those of our ancestor Perez, the son of Tamar and Judah. So Boaz married Ruth and took her home to live with him. When he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant, and she gave, gave birth to a son. And the women of the town said to Naomi, Praise the Lord who's given you a family redeemer today. May he be famous in Israel. May this child restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you so much and who has been better to you than seven sons. Naomi took care of the baby and cared for him as if he were her own. The neighbor woman said, Now at last Naomi has a son again. And they named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David. This is their family line, beginning with their ancestor Peros. Peros was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. And Salmon was the father of Boaz. Boaz was the father of Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of David. Well, just before I start, I'd just like to say um, uh, congratulations to Kevin and Julia, who just got engaged. Where are they? Where are they gone? They're gone? Where are they? Somewhere here, there. Welcome back from honeymoon, David and Catherine. Good to see you back here. Nice to have you back here. Your weekend back. 
And just to top everything, congratulations to Alan and Alison on your Ruby wedding anniversary today, you guys. That's pretty inspiring, isn't it, eh? So you just got engaged, you're married, they're Ruby. Got a while to go, but that's the way to aim. That's the way to aim. Well, it's good to be with your friends, and um, uh, over these last four weeks, we've been looking at the book of Ruth, and uh, I-, I kicked it off on week one, and then we had Richard, and then, and then uh, Chris, week two and week three. It's lovely to be able to uh, close it with us, with you this evening. Um, I thought last week, if you were here last week, it was a terrific talk that Chris gave. If you weren't here, you can listen to it online. He did get a bit confused about what was going on on the threshing floor at some point in his talk. If you weren't here, you missed out on that. It's one of those moments when Chris went red from top to bottom. It's quite fun watching him do that. But it's, it's good to be here closing this. I don't know if you remember, in the 1960s, the Americans and the Russians were having a race to be the first to get a man, a person in space. And uh, uh, the Russians won, uh, and their cosmonaut, uh, Yuri Gagarin, was reported to have said this, I don't see any God up here. I don't see any God up here. That's what he said when he got up in space. In 1968, the American crew, who were the first manned mission to the moon, they radioed back a very different message. Not that they'd seen God, but they'd seen his handiwork. And the world listened while three Apollo astronauts took turns in reading from Genesis. And they read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And then God said, let there be light. According to those two views, we are either alone in the universe, or we have someone who is looking out for us. We are either alone or there is a God who created, who cares deeply about what's going on down here. Wouldn't it be great to be able to board a spacecraft and go up and take a look at uh, life from beginning to end? If you're able to see it from God's perspective, from birth through to death, what's the story of our lives? What's the story of God at work in your life? What's the story of God at work in my life? What is, what is our, our, our today's momentary worries? How does that fit into the greater scheme of things, the greater picture of God at work in our lives? Of course, from our perspective, we're not able to do that. And so sometimes we can get caught up in the everyday things of life in the things of today, in the, in the things that cause anxiety and, and, and disturbance in our hearts for today. We, we get caught up in the, the momentarily, momentary troubles of life. And so we focus on our pain, our losses, our regrets, whatever it might be. If Naomi and our story, if she'd had the opportunity to step back and see the, the, from God's perspective she would have seen, actually, that her suffering, which was huge, if you think about it, 
She lost her, her husband. She lost her two sons. Uh, she lost one of her daughters-in-law. The other one came back. This other daughter-in-law was now someone that was caring for her, and she was trying to care for her daughter-in-law. They, they've, they've come back, and they, she, she says, you know, I, I went uh, a woman full of blessing, and I've come back. I've come back a woman empty of blessing. I've come back a bitter woman. And, uh, but if she'd been able to see from God's perspective, she'd have been able to see that actually uh, he was able to use her tragedy and pain. The fact is that God's able to use her suffering and to equip her to ultimately be part of the role of the mission to save mankind. So her troubles that led her to be in the place that she was, actually her troubles, through those pain and troubles, salvation came to mankind. And it's so often the case, isn't it, that God takes our brokenness, takes our human frailty, and in that crafts something more beautiful. We live in a time when it seems that everybody's goal is to be perpetually healthy and happy. And if anyone fails to live up to that normative standard today, we're labeled as problems and we get well-intentioned people rushing around to put us right, don't we? But life's not, not good all the time, is it? Is that true for all of us? Life's, and it's not supposed to be good all the time. It's not, it, not everything's going to be healthy in the flower bed all the time. There are going to be seasons where weeds grow. There are going to be times when things are painful. That's just the way it is. The gospel offers a different view on life and a different view on suffering. Our suffering, although it is not enjoyable or something we would choose, can be used by God for good. It can be. We began in Ruth chapter 1, way back four weeks ago, we began by saying that these things that happen to us in life can either make us bitter or they can make us better. The story, the story of Ruth, of Naomi's story, is that actually she allowed it in the end to craft her in her life to make her better. And we've journeyed as she's got there together through this process. But, but God uses our suffering. He can, be, he can use it for good. Christ himself demonstrated this through his suffering on the cross. If Christ hadn't gone through suffering, we wouldn't have salvation. Suffering's part of the story of life. Death's part of the story of life. Pain is part of the story of life. It's through suffering that hope comes. It's through suffering that good news is released. So, to return to uh, the story this evening in Ruth, Ruth chapter 4, if you've got a Bible, turn to it. Um, uh, If you remember, Chris left us last week with Ruth and Naomi awaiting to hear from Boaz, and Boaz is waiting at the city gate. I know it sounds crazy to us, but the city gates in Palestine were structures with lookout towers, and they had rooms on either side. And in some of those rooms, they'd have sentries, they'd have the people who would be guarding the city. 
but it was also the place where the judicial system worked. It was the place where people gathered for official business. It was the place where the community gathered. Individuals would come and go from the fields. That's where most of their trading was done. They would come and go from the fields. They would see their crops. They would come through the city gate. And it was at that place that the trading would happen. It was at that place that uh, people would conduct their business. So Boaz goes to the gate for two reasons. Number one, he's hoping to meet uh, this kinsman redeemer or family redeemer who would pass through that gate at some point that day. And if he did pass through the gate, secondly, Boaz wanted to do business with him. He wasn't just meeting him, but rather conducting this business. And so it says, at the beginning of chapter 4, Boaz went to the town gate and took a seat there. Just then the family redeemer he had mentioned came by. So Boaz called out to him, come over here and sit down, friend. I want to talk to you. So they sat down together. Then Boaz called ten leaders from the town and asked them to sit as witnesses. And Boaz said to the family redeemer, You know Naomi, who's come back from Moab, she's selling the land that belonged to our relative uh, Elimelech. I thought I should speak to you about it so that you can redeem it if you wish. If you want the land, then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you don't want it, let me know right away because I'm next in line to redeem it after you. Boaz wastes no time. He gets straight down to business, straight down to the heart of the matter. He wants to deal with this land immediately. And um, uh, uh, the, the man replies, uh, all right, he says, I will redeem it. I think he assesses the situation very quickly. And there's an opportunity here for more business, for more land that will be good for him and his family. He wants to buy it straight away. Marvelous, he thinks. I didn't even know this was on the cards. Someone's coming and offering me some land. It's within the family. And so I can secure it very quickly at a very good price. And I suspect if Ruth were watching at that moment from a distance, her heart would have sunk a little. I think her heart would have gone down. Here's... Boaz who's met her in the field, his Boaz who's uh, uh, helped her out, his Boaz who's been so kind to her and Naomi and now this unnamed family redeemer is looking for a quick deal on the land. Uh, and Boaz immediately comes out with the next little twist in the story, doesn't he? It says verse 5, then Boaz told him, of course your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. That way she can have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land in the family. That immediately changes the situation for this guy. Uh, This man thought he was going to get some sort of bargain, make some money out of it. All of a sudden though the land comes with this burden of this widow who's going to want to have children. I don't know how many wives he's already got Uh, But possibly adding another one would have been pretty disastrous. One too many, so he doesn't even hesitate. Note, he says, then I can't redeem it. I can't redeem it, he says, because that might endanger my own estate. You redeem the land, I can't do it. Now what's interesting here is that there is nothing in the law, nothing in the law that says this man has to marry Ruth. There's nothing. Boaz says the law says you've got to marry Ruth. There's nothing in the law that says he has to marry Ruth. 
It says in the law he has to marry Naomi. But Boaz says you've got to marry Ruth. Now, Naomi may have been uh, too old to have more children. I don't know. I suspect so, having had two boys who have already got married. But what Boaz is appealing to is not the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law, I think. He's saying, look, whatever's possible to continue Eliminek's name, that's our responsibility. And we should do it for Naomi and for Elimelech. So Boaz says he's going to redeem the land and he's going to fulfill his obligations to Ruth. And it would look really bad in the community if he didn't do so and that other man's reputation would be ruined. So he marries Ruth and uh, uh, all goes well. He redeems the land. He says, with the land, I've acquired Ruth, the Merbite widow of Marlon, who would be my wife. And in this way, she can have a son to carry out the family name of her dead husband and inherit the family property here in this hometown. And you are all my witnesses of this. And the story ends with Boaz marrying Ruth, who gives birth to Obed. Obed is the father of Jesse. Jesse is the father of David. So Obed is the grandfather of David in the line of Jesus. Now, that's all very well, isn't it? You might think, well, that's a very nice story, Mark. But what does that mean for us today? Well, I think that the first thing that this story teaches us as we come to its conclusion is this. Number one, there's probably a bigger picture than you realize whatever the situation is in your life. The bigger picture is the one that God sees that we so often don't see. It's the picture from the perspective of eternity. It's actually the picture that puts us in the right place to be in God's will. Whatever it takes to be in the will of God. What would he do to get us in his will? When I became a Christian, I didn't become a Christian because I went through some sort of tragedy. I didn't become a... I actually went to church because there was rather a nice leggy girl there and I went to see what she was like and, and I kept going and in the end I married her. But there's, there was the, there was the, that's why I went to church. I didn't go to church really to find God. I went to church to find a nice wife because that's where the nice girls went. Well, it's true. But in so doing, in so doing, I found God, whatever it takes. I think God will put us in whatever position he needs to put us in to get us to a point where we meet with him. He'll put us in whatever position we need to that we would connect with him. There's probably a bigger picture than you realize. Listen in your head to the stories that Ruth and Naomi would have told to Obed, their son and grandson. They'd have told him about a faithful God despite their troubles. They'd have told him about a God who redeemed them. They'd have told him about Boaz being their savior, enabling them to live again. They'd have talked about a God that they can trust in, whatever happens in their lives. They're the stories that have told. They're the bedtime stories that they'll have told to uh, Obed. That we can trust in this God who turns a bitter heart into a better heart. 
We can trust in this God who puts things right in our lives. And as Obed grows, he would then tell the same stories to his son, Jesse. My parents always taught me this this is the God we can trust in. And this is the God who redeemed them. This is the God who saved them. This is the God who picked them up when everything was lost, when all was put down. And Jesse would have then told the same stories to his son David. David, the shepherd boy out in the hillside, who would sing of God's unfailing love and goodness. The God who pursues me all the days of my life, who looks after me despite my troubles, who makes me lie down in green pastures. The stories that David told in the Psalms came from his father, Jesse, that came from his father, Obed, that came through Boaz, redeeming Ruth and Naomi. The story of the family that says, this is the God you can trust in. This is the God you can rely on. The Psalms reflect the story of a people in pain and trouble and of God's redemption of those people. And I think that part of this comes from this incredible story of Ruth. The, the, the book that, that, that is so tiny and it seems because it's about one little family really of not much significance in Scripture and yet its echoes go through every book that goes from there on because of the story of God at work in this troubled family's life. So whatever's going on in your life, whatever trouble you have in your life, whatever, whatever brokenness that there might be, there's a bigger story. God's got a bigger story going on. And you know you can rely on God's bigger story. What, we get into trouble when we think we can fix it all. You know that sort of situation? I can put it all right in my life. I can sort everything out. Well, The truth is we can't sort everything out, but God does. He has this bigger picture for us that we can link into. The second thing that it teaches us is to remind us that God is our redeemer. God redeems us whatever happens in life. The cost factor of redeeming us is far greater than we could ever imagine. It involves personal sacrifice. That's what Boaz demonstrated by redeeming Ruth. The the other kinsman redeemer who chose not to buy the land and therefore not to inherit Ruth as well, therefore not to marry Ruth and have children with her, chose not to do that, I think, because if he'd married Ruth and had children with Ruth, then all of a sudden, his land gets splits up, split up further. There's a personal cost. And he says, I don't want to have that personal cost. But Boaz says, I'll bear the cost. What a lovely precursor that is. Christ says, I'll bear the cost. I will carry the cost. I'll carry the cost of mankind's brokenness. He demonstrated to us not, not, uh, that, that, not that salvation comes free, but it comes at a high cost. It comes at a cost that he took on on our behalf. No one reading this book would ever anticipate such a remarkable turn of events. A turn of events that leads to the book of Ruth being scattered throughout scripture. Ruth ends up being given such a place of honor 
that she's one of the few women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. The book of Ruth is about coping with unanswered prayers. It's about enduring countless sleepless nights filled with doubts, fears, and anxieties. But it's also a book about trusting that there is a God who in the beginning made the heavens and the earth. That if you went up in a spaceship, you would look around and you wouldn't say, I can't see God, but you'd say, he created. He created in the beginning. He created all this beauty. And I trust in a God who's so vast and able to create all of this and yet so intimate that he cares for you and for me in a perfect way. His eyes are on you. His heart is for you. And all we are asked to do is trust that in the bigger picture of life, God has a good plan for us and that our momentary troubles are but momentary in the snapshot of eternity, trusting our lives to him. Is that okay? Let's stand together, shall we?